Hello, Legends. Before we get into the episode, I just want to quickly tell you about a brand new show that I have just released. It's called Crime at Bedtime. And as the name suggests, it's been designed with those in mind who like to go to sleep at night listening to a fascinating true crime story. We'll release a brand new episode every single Monday, but right now there is a stack of episodes for you to binge straight away. So go check it out. It's called Crime at Bedtime. It's available wherever you get your podcasts from. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. Today is episode six of the story of Jeremy and Zachary Kane and Mark Harper. Three teens arrested and convicted for the 2002 murder of Jimmy Hill, a crime they have always maintained was self-defence. While Mark Harper was freed after serving three years of his original sentence, Jeremy and Zach remain incarcerated in Alabama for this crime. Now, in today's episode, we're going to be focusing on another one of the prosecution's key witnesses. And I want to give you the heads up right now that there is a lot of detail in this episode. Okay, so I'm going to sound like your high school teacher here. Time to switch on and focus. And maybe even make some notes if you want to. I'm going to test you at the end of the episode. That was a lie. I'm not going to test you. Just, but just, you know, pay attention. This call is not private. It will be recorded and may be monitored. You may start the conversation now. Zach. What's going on, Jack? How are you, buddy? I'm doing all right. How about yourself? Mate, can't complain. Cannot complain, my friend, uh, especially when I'm talking to you. That's for sure. I've got nothing to complain about. Let's be honest. <laughs> How's your weekend been? Well, I've been all right. Sitting around doing nothing. I ain't been out of work. I uh, work till Monday, Monday through Friday, so weekends are kind of slow, but hey, it's better than other environments I've been in, so. I suppose it's, uh, you know, it's a lot different to the outside world where most people sort of look forward to the weekend. You probably look forward to the week because you've got stuff to do. Exactly. So sitting around doing nothing is just not uh, productive. Um, what I would like to to talk about is is this witness because obviously this is a major part of the, the case because obviously his testimony changes and... Uh-huh. Yeah, Paul Gillian. Chris Dano would not be the only key witness for the prosecution in this trial, as a man named Paul Gilliland would take the stand to testify to what he saw that day, as would his wife, the lady who would make the 911 call that afternoon. Mr Gilliland would say that he was at home that day in his downstairs bedroom while his wife would testify that she was upstairs looking after their young granddaughter and about to start some cleaning when she would hear loud vehicles outside. As she looked out the window, she says she would see four people arguing. 
she saw two bats and a stick being held in the air. These were being held by the teens, and she says she did not observe Jimmy Hill holding any type of weapon or timber at any stage at all. She never saw him throw anything away, and she never saw him attack any of the boys. She calls out for her husband to tell him something's going on out the front. When she gets downstairs to the front door, her husband is already there, outside on the porch. She would ask him if she should call 911, to which he replies yes. She then runs to the kitchen and gets the phone and dials 911. I got a 911 tape. It happened in less than 15 seconds. You can listen to the tape. There's a woman in the window watching this. She says, I've got somebody. She's on the phone with the police now. She's on the 911 tape. I've got somebody fighting in my yard. They're beating each other with sticks and bats. Okay, they're beating each other. They're out there fighting. And then she says, one's on the ground. That's 15 seconds. Jimmy Hill's down. Her husband, you can hear him when he runs out the door. You hear him run, holler, call the police. He runs out the door. It's over. This man testified in court. He's seen everything. He testified. He stood on his porch for a minute and a half. Day one of this thing, he, he had a paragraph telling what happened. The first time Zachary went to court, he had more to say. He had more to say about Zachary that time, my youngest son, that he was doing this, he was doing that. He was doing, trying to get him transferred into for out of juvenile. And then he always, his story kept growing and growing and growing until to the final trial. Apparently the victims 
Mrs Gilliland would testify that in the time it took her to go and get the phone to dial 911 and come back to the front of the house, Jimmy Hill was already on the ground. She saw no blows struck by anyone. She was unable to identify any of the boys with any type of confidence. Her husband Paul, however, would not only say he witnessed what had happened, but he also made an effort in which to stop it. He would jump from his porch, lose his footing and tumble slightly down the embankment of their property. Once he got back up, he headed for the boys, gun in hand. He attempts to fire a warning shot to stop the altercation, but his gun would jam. Once the police had arrived on scene and Jimmy Hill had been removed by the air ambulance, police would take a statement from him. This is the full statement taken from him at the scene that day. I heard a loud noise outside, so I went out on my porch. Three youths were arguing with my neighbour, holding ball bats. After one hit him, I jumped off my porch to intervene, and they left. So as you can hear, just two sentences. 33 words of information as to what Mr Gilliland had said he'd seen that day. The next statement would be part of a police report that was written by the first officer on scene that afternoon. Witness 1 stated to me that he was inside his home, 1122 Fifth Street, and his wife, Witness 2, yelled for help, stating there was a fight outside. Witness 1 is a corrections officer with the Department of Youth Services. Witness 1 stated he got his pistol and ran outside and saw three young white males and one older white male standing in the street, having what appeared to be an argument. Witness 1 stated two of the young white males had baseball bats in their hands, and the other young white male had a large stick in his hand. Witness 1 stated the older white male did not have anything in his hands that he could see. Witness 1 stated he also saw two vehicles parked in the street right behind the three young subjects. Vehicle 1 was a Chevrolet Camaro, green in color. Witness 1 stated he saw sitting inside this vehicle in the driver's seat another young white male. Witness 1 stated this subject never exited the vehicle. Vehicle number two was a Ford pickup truck, yellow in color. Witness one stated that this vehicle did not have anyone in it that he could see. Witness one stated he heard the victim state to the subjects, you ain't man enough to hit me. Okay, so I want to note a few things as we go through this particular statement. So Mr. Gilliland says he sees the three boys, two holding bats and one holding a stick. He says he can't see Mr. Hill holding anything at all. He also states he sees another young white male sitting in the Camaro, which is the car owned by Mark Harper. He says he hears Mr Hill tell the boys, you ain't man enough to hit me. Now, this is something Chris Stano would tell Mr Kane on the day of the incident that he also heard. However, when it came time for the trial, Chris would say he doesn't remember hearing this or telling anyone that he heard this. Witness 1 stated that at this time, the subject who was holding the stick grabbed a baseball bat from the hands of another subject and struck the victim in the leg area with the bat. Witness 1 stated he saw the victim bend over from this blow and the same subject then struck the victim in the head with the bat. Witness stated at this time, the other subject who was holding a bat struck the victim in the head area. Witness 1 stated that the victim also received a blow to the back with a baseball bat, but Witness 1 is not sure which subject struck this blow. Witness 1 stated that the attack lasted a matter of seconds and a total of four blows were struck to the victim with baseball bats. So he sees one of the boys drop the stick that he had and take a bat from one of the other boys and then hit Mr Hill in the leg 
and then the same person then hits Mr Hill apparently in the head and then the other teen also hits Mr Hill in the head. Now he says he sees Mr Hill also get hit in the back but he's not sure who it was that hit Mr Hill there. Witness 1 stated he jumped over the front porch railing of his home to go to the victim's aid. Witness 1 suffered an injury to his leg in jumping and was treated by the paramedics. Witness 1 stated he went to the victim's side and while holding his pistol in his hand, told the subjects to stop the attack and drop the bats. Witness 1 stated that one of the subjects stated, Suck my dick. Witness 1 stated he told the subjects that the police were coming and to wait, but one subject got inside the Chevrolet Camaro and two of the subjects got inside the Ford truck and left the scene. And again, here you have one teenager jumping into the Camaro owned by Mark Harper and two into the truck owned by Jeremy. Now we know from Cristano's statement that he had always remained seated in Jeremy's truck. There was no one in the Camaro. And when they all left, two, Mark and Zach, jump into the Camaro and Jeremy, one, jumps into the truck. Now, of course, people make mistakes. And that is the whole point when we talk about eyewitnesses. People make mistakes. People remember things differently. Witness 1 stated that he did not know any of the subjects and did not get a tag number off either vehicle. Witness 2 stated that she did not see the attack and did not see the subjects well enough to ID them due to the fact that she had gone inside to get her husband and stayed inside to watch her young granddaughter. Now, the police report says that Witness 2, who is Mr Gilliland's wife, says she didn't see anything because she stayed inside However, at trial, she would testify that she did not stay in the home at all. She said that this part of the police report was incorrect and she apparently never said that she stayed in the house while this incident took place. Witness 2 did state she saw the same two vehicles that Witness 1 described. From past calls I have handled involving the victim and the description of the vehicles, I felt that the two subjects involved were, number one, Mark Harper, I know he drives a green Chevrolet Camaro and has had past encounters with the victim that the police were involved in. Number two, Zach Kane. A yellow Ford pickup truck is owned by a member of his family, and I have seen him hang out with Mark Harper many times. I placed these two subjects' names over the police radio as possible suspects. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I really believe that I don't think he actually saw what happened, I believe that his wife actually saw more of what happened, and they just rather put him on the stand than her, and kind of coached him on what to say is what I, I believe happened. Oh my, you know, I can't prove that, but she said she really didn't see much. She just called nine one one. Um, just she said she didn't really see what happened. She just seen I mean, the situation, and she called nine one one and was on the phone with the nine one one operator. Why would you think that they'd want him up there giving the testimony as opposed to her? He was a corrections officer for one, and two, I think they felt like he would hold up better under questioning than her. That's just my speculation. You know, I don't really know why, because I know that I, I saw her as we were leaving on the cordless telephone in her glass door of her house. So I know she's, I don't know what point she got there, but um, I'm, 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 she may not have, but... um. I just know that he did not see as much as he said he saw. He fell off his porch, rolled around across the ground, and, and everything happened in literally seconds. I mean, we're talking 15, 20 seconds, maybe, tops from start to finish. I mean, it just happened so fast. You know, so I don't see how he saw. And then the, the statements he gave at the scene was very short. And then a couple of weeks later, it was like uh, a paragraph. And then by the time he got to court, it was testifying for hours. I don't know the exact amount of time, but he had a whole lot more to say by the time he went to court. As Jeremy's mentioned, the witness, Paul Gilliland, was actually a prison officer at the local youth offenders centre where Zach would be held. And Zach tells me that Mr Gilliland at one stage attempted to talk to him after the incident. I was in juvenile. He worked there. He talked to me in the uh, cafeteria and he just kept... He just... <laughs> My parts remember that because I was so shocked that he tried to talk to him. I couldn't believe he tried to talk to him because they kept him away from him most of the time, but I had to clean the cafeteria, and I think he set that up to where I had to clean the cafeteria because he was in there. And, and I came in there, and, and I was cleaning up, and he come out talking to me, like, saying he's sorry, and he hate this happened, and all this stuff, and I'm like... And I just pretty much left. Like, I don't, I don't remember if I talked to him or not, just to be honest, because... I don't think I said anything to him, but my mom and dad told me, do not talk to him, period. He wasn't even supposed to communicate with me, but he did. As we know, very shortly after this incident took place, all three boys would go to the police station to let them know what had happened between them and Mr Hill. As the officer who was first on scene arrives back to the station, he would see the boys and their parents in the parking lot 
and instantly decides to drive back to Mr Gilliland's home to get him to come to the police station to see if he could identify the boys as the ones involved. Now, this wouldn't be your normal everyday lineup. This is what is referred to as a show-up. There is no one else involved in this situation, just the boys sitting there. They bring Mr Gilliland to the station, show him the boys and say, are these the boys that were involved in this incident? This is taken from the officer's report. On my return to PGPD HQ, I found subjects Mark Harper and both Zach and Jeremy Kane waiting in the parking lot with their parents. I immediately returned to Witness One's home and asked him to come to PGPD HQ to see if he could ID the subjects as the attackers. Witness One came to HQ and viewed each subject through one-way glass. Witness One stated that he recognized subject Jeremy Kane as one of the subjects at the scene and that Jeremy Kane is the subject who took the bat from the other subject's hand and struck the first blow to the victim's leg area and then a blow to the victim's head area. Witness 1 stated that he recognized subject Zach Kane as the one holding the bat that Jeremy Kane took out of his hands. Witness 1 stated that he does not think subject Zach Kane struck any blows to the victim. Witness 1 stated he did not recognize subject Mark Harper. Mark Harper might be the subject who Witness 1 saw seated in the green Camaro, which is Harper's vehicle. Let's take note of this again, because Mr Gilliland has arrived at the police station just over an hour after this incident has happened. So very fresh in the memory, you would think. He says that Jeremy is the one that struck Mr Hill in the leg and in the head, but he didn't believe that Zach had struck Mr Hill at all. He did not recognise Mark Harper, but he says he could have been the one who was seated in the Camaro, which the officer states, of course, is the car that Mark owns. As we know, Mark was not seated in the Camaro while this incident took place. Mark was well and truly out of the car and involved in the confrontation. Cristano was seated not in the Camaro, but in Jeremy's yellow truck. As we can hear in this follow-up interview with Mr Gilliland, the only part of his original statement that is rectified is the section where Mr Gilliland had said that one of the boys told him to suck my dick. He is now saying that no, the boys weren't telling him to suck his dick. This is what Mr Hill had apparently said to the boys. The fourth subject, who we believe to be Chris Stano, was not present for the witness to ID at this time. Sergeant Maddox, PGPD, interviewed each subject with their parent or parents present and read each subject their rights. Each subject stated they understood their rights and stated they did not want to make any statements at this time. No questions were asked of or to any of the subjects. Subjects Harper, Z. Kane, and J. Kane were booked into PGPD holding areas without trouble. At approximately 1840 hours this date, Chris Stano, with both of his parents, came to HQ to turn himself in. He was advised of his rights by Sergeant Maddox. He stated that he did not want to make any statements. Subject Stano did state to his parents in Sergeant Maddox's presence, I was there, but I never got out of the car. Subject Stano was booked into PGPD holding area without any trouble. Follow-up. April 26, 2001. Witness Paul Gilliland was interviewed again, and it was discovered that the subject had stated to Gilliland that he had told me to suck his dick. Gilliland had replied that it was no reason to beat a man almost to death. Gilliland said it was not directed at him, but what the subject said Jimmy Hill had said to him the suspect. 
Now, the first time Mr Gilliland would be called to testify would be at Zach's juvenile hearing, as they would work out if Zach would be treated as an adult for these charges or not. This is taken from the court transcripts of Mr Gilliland's testimony that day. Before we get into it, let us remember that when he first turned up to the police station, only just over an hour after this incident took place, Jeremy Kane, he says, struck Mr Hill once in the leg and once in the head, and he does not believe... Zach Kane struck Mr. Hill at all. When you first noticed the vehicle and noticed them in the street, where were you when that occurred? I was in my bedroom window. What did you do next? Well, I got up out of the bed. I came around the bedroom and, and started out. And my wife hollered, you know, there's somebody outside. Do you remember what she hollered? No. She said they had ball bats. What did you do? I opened the front door and went out on the porch. And what did you observe when you got out on the porch? I watched them, you know, arguing. When you say arguing, well, what do you mean by that? What what did you see? Well, they was, uh, they were, well, they was trying to surround him and he was backing back towards his house. All right. When you say trying to surround him, who are you referring to? Jimmy Hill. The three boys were trying to surround him. Yes, sir. When you say he was trying to go back to his house, are you talking about Jimmy? Yes, sir. So you've got three individuals attempting to surround the victim. What, what did you observe next? Well, you know, he, he kept on backing up. And then my wife come to the door and asked if I want to call the police. I told her yes. From the first time that you saw him in the street? Right. And you saw the suspects with the bats and the sticks? Right. Where was that in relation to your house? It was almost in front of it. Almost in front of it? Right. Were there any vehicles parked there? Yes, sir. What kind of vehicles? A truck with large tires on it, yellow. Yellow? And a blue Camaro, bluish green. A bluish green Camaro and a yellow truck? Yes, sir. Now, how many people did you see in all? Four counting Jimmy Hill. Where was the other suspect? He was in the car, but I didn't see him at the time. From the point, do you know where... I'm I'm going to take you forward just a second, and then we're going to, to back up. From the point where Jimmy was killed... From the point that his body lay to the point that you first observed them, do you have a judgment as to the distance? Well, it's it's probably 50 yards. And when you first observed them, that 50-yard point you're talking about is up more right in front of your house. Is that correct? Yes, sir. And 50 yards down the street, I believe, is where Jimmy died. Yes, sir. What did you observe between those two points, between the point of where you first observed them and where he was killed? I seen one of the juveniles take a bat and give him the stick away from the other juvenile. Did that happen down where Jimmy was beat, or did that happen somewhere in between? No, sir. That happened where he was beat? Yes, sir. But before they got to that point, what were you observing the three individuals doing? They were... He had one in front of him and one on each side of him. He, he was trying to back back towards his house. So you were able to watch Jimmy back toward his home? Yes. And that period of the distance between where you were able to observe him backing up was about 50 yards. Is that correct, sir? Well, yes. I, I came in on the porch. I guess he backed 30 yards, I know. However long it is. You, you know the two points, however long they are. Yes. And during this period of time, these individuals were trying to surround him. Is that the word that you used? Yes, sir. And he was retreating? Yes, sir. So at any time, did you ever see Jimmy Hill with a weapon or anything that could be construed as a weapon? No, sir. 
At any time from the time that you started observing this incident, did you ever see Jimmy Hill attempt to get a weapon? No, sir. Did you ever see him strike at any one of the other individuals before they attempted to strike at him? No, sir. Did, at some point in time, did you see him attempt to strike at one of these individuals after they struck at him? Yes, sir. So obviously the prosecution here are building their picture of Mr Hill attempting to retreat from the boys, reiterating that Mr Gilliland says that he saw the altercation start at the front of his house and by the time that he was dead, he was 30 yards away from Mr Gilliland's house and closer to his own home. And of course, also solidifying the fact that Mr Hill was definitely unarmed. Mr Gilliland says on more than one occasion that at no point did he see Jimmy with a weapon or even try and arm himself with a weapon. Now, when the blows were first struck, when the first blow was struck, was there any conversation between any of these individuals and Jimmy at that point in time? Yes, sir. The juvenile took the bat away from the other juvenile and handed him the stick and told him if he didn't have the balls enough to hit him, he would. Can you identify the juvenile, as you say, that took the bat from somebody else? Yes, sir. And for the purposes of clarification, let me just make sure we've, we've got it here. You previously testified that there were three individuals, two had bats and one had a stick. Yes, sir. Now, did this individual have a bat? No, sir. Or a stick? He had a stick. He had a stick? Yes, sir. At any point in time, did he ever have a bat? Yes, sir. When was that? He took it away from one of the other individuals. And what did he say when he did that? If he didn't have the balls to do it, I will. And what did he do after that? He got into a verbal conversation. Jimmy told him he didn't have the balls to hit him either. And he says, put the bats down and I'll whip all three of you and make you suck my dick. And grabbed himself in the crotch. Grabbed his crotch. Right. And then what happened? The individual hit him. Which individual? That individual there, Zachary Kane. So let's remember that when Mr Gilliland first arrived at the police station around an hour after this incident, he said it was Jeremy who took the bat from Zach. Jeremy was the one who struck Mr Hill twice. Now he's saying it was Zach who in fact had the bat and not only did he strike Mr Hill, but we now have this new information around the conversation where Zach has apparently said, if you're not man enough to do it, I will. Now, some extra information for you. This hearing that is taking place right now is over one month after the actual incident itself. 45 days on from his original statement that he made an hour after the incident. Would the record reflect that you've identified the defendant? And do you have a judgment as to how many times this defendant struck the victim? Well, no, sir. I, I just, you know, he hit him that first time and I jumped off my porch and started running down there. So I think this is also important here. As Mr. Gilliland says, after Mr. Hill is hit the first time, this is where he jumps from his porch to go and assist. Now, why is this important? Well, because we know as fact that when Mr. Gilliland jumps from his porch, he falls and hurts him his ankle. It's quite a big drop. And in fact, he rolls down an embankment that is at the front of his property. 
By all accounts, this whole incident happens within seconds. Mr Gilliland says that even his wife says it. In fact, in the 911 call, Mr Gilliland's wife tells the operator less than 30 seconds into the call that all the subjects have left. So if Mr Gilliland jumps from his porch as soon as that first blow is struck and then rolls down his embankment on his property, hurting his ankle, how quickly is he able to get back up, regain his composure and then be able to observe the rest of what's happened? What, what did you do? Anything else? Well, I pulled my pistol and tried to fire around in the air. It snapped. It didn't fire? No, sir. And did you have the gun in your hand? Yes, sir. When you went down there? Yes, sir. Now, did all three of the individuals that had a bat and or a stick swing at Jimmy Hill? Yes, sir. After the first blow, everyone started hitting him. All three of them? Yes, sir. Here, Mr Gilliland now says that after the first blow was struck... Everyone then begins hitting Mr. Hill. Going back to the original type statement by the police from an hour after the incident, when he identified the boys, he said that Jeremy hit Mr. Hill twice. He saw Zach with a bat, but didn't believe that Zach had hit Mr. Hill at all. And he was unable to identify whether or not Mark Harper was there and thought he could be the one in the car. Again, that was his memory after one hour. This is over one month later. Then what did you do? Well, like I say, I proceeded on down there, hollering and screaming, trying to get him to stop. And what was said while you were there? Well, Zach told me that he told him to suck his dick. I told him that's no reason to kill a man. Was Zach the only one still there at that point in time? Yes, sir. Two passed me before I got down there, going back to their vehicles. When you say pass, what were they doing? Well, they were running back to their cars. Running? Right. And the other one? Well, Zachary was the one that told me that he told him to suck his dick. When you refer to him as Zachary, you know his name now, but you didn't know it at the time. Is that correct? Uh, Yes, sir. Whether you knew his name or not, this is the individual that you had the conversation with. Is that correct? Yes, sir. And again, for the record, what was it that was said at that point in time? He said that he said he was going to make him suck his dick. I told him that's no reason to kill a man. He went by me and then I went to Jimmy. And what did he do? Who? The defendant. He went to the car too and took off. Running, walking? Walking, kind of running. Do you have any recollection how he took off? No. And did they all get in their vehicles? Yes, sir. What did they do? Well, they took off. Did they take off at a high rate of speed? Yes, sir. Okay, what happened next? Well, my wife brought the phone down there with the paramedics on it and 911. I was talking to them. And did you attempt to administer some sort of... Right. And I had my handkerchief on his head. My wife brought me a rag and a pillow, and I had it on the back of his head. Were you able to talk to him at all? No, sir. He was unconscious. And at some point in time, did the police and all the medical personnel arrive on the scene? Yes, sir. And after that, I presume at some point in time, you were interviewed by police? Yes, sir. I believe that's all I have at this time, Your Honour. This was part of Mr Gilliland's testimony during the juvenile hearing of Zachary Kane. And the back and forth we just heard was between the prosecution and Mr Gilliland. Now, Zach's attorney would get a chance to cross-examine him and would ask him about a few points that were different from his original statement. Zach's attorney would ask Mr Gilliland, did you ever tell police that Jeremy Kane took a bat out of the hand of Zachary Kane? No, he answers. It was probably the other way around, he says. So you're saying you told police that Zachary Kane took the bat out of the hands of Jeremy Kane? Probably, he replies. Zach's attorney goes on to talk about the show-up 
as it's called, where Mr Gilliland was called in an hour after the incident to identify the boys and tell them who did what during the altercation and asked him if he was ever supplied a copy of this statement, to which he replies, no. The attorney again asks him, did you ever make the statement that you do not think Zachary Kane struck any blows to the victim? Mr Gilliland replies, I don't remember. You have one minute remaining. And that's all we have time for. However, coming up in our next episode, Mr Gilliland would take the stand in the boys' trial. And any recollection of who hit Mr Hill and how many times is now gone. And the boys are just referred to as the teenagers. With the Kane family desperate for answers, they would in fact themselves visit Mr Gilliland and unbeknownst to him, catch him on tape, saying that he saw something that day, something that at trial he categorically repeated he never saw. Well, it looked like four by four. Yeah, I heard. But then they went back, the police couldn't find it. Next time on One Minute Remaining. One Minute Remaining is a Mashed Pumpkin production created, hosted and produced by Jack Lawrence. Audio and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans of ESA. Listener.